0: Hi, it's Stan here for Dusty Gists Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today I'm very honoured to have as my special guest, Basil Donovan, best known as bass player for the iconic Canadian band Blue Rodeo. So we'll be talking about music and travels and the ups and downs of being a career entertainer, and we'll get some other insights as well about recording and working on albums and much more as we get a perspective about the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. So thanks for joining me today, Basil. How are you? I'm good. How are you Dan? Well I'm doing fine and uh, great to have you on and uh, I'd like to have these conversations because uh, they're a little bit more in-depth and I get to kind of explore the thinking behind uh, a lot of the successes and and uh, the issues with bands especially the iconic Canadian bands like Blue Rodeo and you oh. said that you were born in Halifax but you grew up in Toronto so you're you're based yes. in Toronto still I guess right? Yes i yeah
1: my parents uh my dad was in the navy and when i was one Uh. (laughs) he uh he left the navy because you know it it was it meant traveling the world and uh yes he wanted to be around to watch me grow up so uh they moved to toronto because there was a lot more work here this is the 50s you know yeah and he got to toronto and uh we've been here ever since
0: Oh, good. Yeah. So you're uh, a Canadian boy and born and bred, and you never you never left to go anywhere else. You just remained in uh, Toronto. Uh,
1: I, you know, I I did a little uh, trip to New York, lived there briefly,
0: but uh, okay. I,
1: I've been on the road most of
0: <laughs> yeah. There you go. Most
1: of my life, you know, it's yeah. It's been a tour bus. Actually, is where yeah. I live. <laughs> there you go.
0: Well, how did the whole music thing come about? Like, did you, did you have some training or did you just decide, like, I mean, back then it was the coolest thing in the world to be in a band, right? I mean, that was just, yeah. it was be a hockey player, be a musician. I mean, that was just right up in there on the cool factor. So what was your experience?
1: Well, as I said, I'm from the East coast and, you know, being from the East coast, uh, my mother had five brothers, all of them played guitar Okay, and, and kitchen parties were a regular thing at my house. Uh, My parents were rather young when they had me, so their partying days were still going. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd watch my uncles play all the time around, you know, kitchen table and that. And then when the parties would happen, you know, they would play all these great songs by like the Everly Brothers and uh, Elvis Presley. And my uncles were into the old rock, like the 50s rock and roll. So it was very uh, inspiring to watch them, you know, and I saw how much attention people paid to them because they played music. And I loved the songs and everything. So when I was young, I got my uncle to, sh- you know, show me a few things and he taught me. I remember the first thing he taught me was this thing called the guitar boogie shuffle, right? Which is right. just a little 12 bar kind of exercise. And, uh, and I picked it up pretty quickly. So around the time I was about 11, 12, I could play a couple of things and, yeah. uh, and then the, you know, the Beatles happened, right? Like, right. Uh, the Beatles happened when I was when I was ten. So all of a sudden it was like, "Wow, this is yeah. cool!" You know, <laughs> I, I want to do what they're doing. Yeah, uh, and became I became a huge Beatles fan all my life, and uh, course, yeah. you know followed their career. Uh, yeah. you know with a fine tooth comb, waited in line at Sam the Record Man in Toronto when wow. records like Abbey Road would be released, and I you know run down there. At uh, nine o'clock in the morning, stand in line. Oh, when yeah. they released it, you know, at eleven or whatever, you know, be up at the front of the line and be the first to get my copy. Oh, and very go cool. Home, go home yeah. and listen to it, and you know, try to play yeah. the learn to, learn to play the songs. I also had a good friend who was a uh, one of my friends who I went to school with. Who was an accordion? He played accordion. Hmm. He was Italian, and his parents had put him in accordion lessons since he was six. So he he had a pretty good grasp of being able to pick things up off of records. So we started, you know, trying to learn our favorite songs, basically. And that uh, that was my inspiration for, you know, it was like my uncles and, and then the Beatles hitting. And it was like... Yeah yeah, this looks like fun, you know? Well, the
0: and, neat thing about the family influence, well, there's music all around you, but you're just kind of, you learn by acclamation. You just kind of, ex, you're expected to play. You say, well, I can try that. And you try this and try that. And it's, it's one of the best training grounds and inspirational training grounds, I guess, is, is a good oh, way to go like
1: it. how I ended up playing, uh, country music is like totally by, you know, I, it was something I stumbled <laughs> into because, uh, I had a girlfriend in high school and she ended up becoming my wife at one point. Uh, But uh, she sang really well. She had a gift. Like she could sing Patsy Cline, Loretta Lynn, when she was a child, she could sing in tune and she, she was really good. And so, you know, I went to see her sing one night. She was guesting. She was just a guest with this uh, country group and uh, they were playing this Divey bar down in in cabbage town in toronto and she didn't want me to come because she was a little embarrassed you know she she thought it wasn't very cool like she wanted to be a rock singer but she could do this and her parents were really into country music so i went to see her sing and i was this is in high school i'm you know at the time i'm in a a rock band in high school that's, that's rehearsing five times a week Mm. And, uh, you know, we're learning the hits of the day, like the Doobie Brothers and, you know, whatever was on the radio. Right. And we're we're getting we're getting okay. We're starting to play some gigs. You know, we've got like dances and and that and and it's going pretty well. And then I go to see her and I get get there and she's not she doesn't know I'm coming and I'm supposed to kind of hide. But anyway, she spots (laughs) me and I sit down with her parents and we watch her sing. And I was blown away because she was so good. Well, halfway through the night, the bass player comes over and he says, "Uh, I hear you play bass. I said, yeah. He says, how do you feel about finishing the night for me? I said, oh, I I can't do that. I don't know the songs. And he said, well, I've got to go. I'm leaving. He said, I'm an ambulance driver by trade. And uh, I have to leave now because it's a busy night in Toronto. There's a lot of things going on and uh, they need me. So I'm leaving. So the band's not going to have a bass player. If you even just go up there and play really quietly and if you don't know the songs just kind of wow. duck out you know and yeah. i kind of went oh well uh okay i guess i'll do it well i went up on the st- I went up and they started playing and i realized that the songs they were playing i heard my uncle singing them for years there you, you know? go Oh, so funny. it was like Johnny Cash, and you know, yeah. they all oh, Folsom Prison Blues. I said, I, you know, yeah. I can make it through this, right? Yeah. So I st- and I knew to play boom, 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 one five, as they call it, right? Yeah. So I started following along, and I said, just make sure I can see. I said I play guitar as well, so make sure I can see the guitar player's hands, because if I know what chord he's playing, I'll yeah. play that note. So they made it so I could see the the singer his his hands and uh i followed along i played the whole night and at the end of the night they came and said uh what are you doing saturday uh arthur has to work and if you want the gig you can have yeah. it so that was my introduction and start of you know i've been playing yeah. country music in toronto ever since i play i play a sunday sunday country gig with uh, some of my friends in toronto a, wow. a great steel guitar player named Bert carroll and this guy named clayton yates and uh they're yeah. They're like a super polished country band. And we play hmm. every Sunday at the Rivoli in Toronto. Very so cool. like, I I was talking to them about it yesterday because I flew. I played the Blue Rodeo on Saturday night in Ottawa at the uh, the National Arts Centre. Hmm. And I flew home Sunday morning and I told uh, Jude at our office, I said, you've got to make it so I get home early enough to play my gig in the afternoon because I'm playing a country gig, right? Which oh. they thought, the guys in the band, they thought that was great that I would do that. <laughs> Know? So you yeah. played the National Arts Center, and then you flew home to play with us. You
0: know? <laughs> no, that's cool. But I was well, saying to
1: him, like I've been playing country music in Toronto for 52 years now.
0: Well, yeah. Well, again, it go, and it's it goes back to those influences that you had, that you heard your uncle playing, and that you you just sort of join in. So that's yes. that's a special skill in itself to just be kind of massage the situation, listen to the songs. You can kind of hear the changes coming, and you you just kind of. Exactly. Like careful, but you but you play. But the yeah. interesting thing that I always that strikes me too is that we had such a great time growing up because all the influences, like you mentioned, the Beatles, but then you know, Orbison and Elvis and, and yes. Buddy Holly and all that, we got all that. Then we got all the other great bands, the British invasion bands. And then Absolutely. in the 70s, it was completely wide open. And, and from what I read here, your influences were like ska and punk and rock and pop. So you were I, you all know, over the place too, right? I,
1: I had no prejudice when it came yeah. to music. I listened to everything.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, my uncle once told me, he said, if you're going to play, you're going to have to wear a lot of hats in this business. He said, yeah. so don't reject anything. Play mm-hmm. any kind of music. He said, don't listen to those guys that only play the cool thing. He said, because he said, those guys will be out of work in six months when that cool thing is no longer cool. You've got to learn to adapt and play whatever comes your way. So I grew up in an Italian neighborhood in Toronto. I was playing with a whole bunch of people and we were doing Italian weddings and we would play all of these, these, you know, little sonatas and everything like these dance songs for, and then we'd break into the pop songs for the young people. But we learned, you know, we had to learn a wide repertoire of stuff, you know, from Randy, you're a fine girl, right, like right down yeah. through all of the Beatles and the Stones and the Doobie Brothers. And then we learned yeah. some James Brown, like because our singer could actually pull off playing, you know, yeah. some of the funk stuff. Like he could sing some yeah. of the funk stuff that we would try cool. to play. So we we didn't limit ourselves to one style of music. We always like, you know, country music was incredibly Uncool at the time when I was playing it, when I started. Yeah. I remember some of my friends would say to me, like, Nazel, what are you doing playing in a <laughs> corny country band? You know, like, yeah. why don't you, you know, why don't you join a rock band that's playing like, you know, there was a friend of ours who was, he did like a, a he could play Jimi Hendrix note for note, you know, and, yeah. and like he was considered the coolest guy in the neighborhood, right? But he never right. played any gigs. He <laughs> 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 He'd only play like, you know, in his, garage or in the backyard when it was warm enough
0: right i'm a fan of playing everything too i think that we were very fortunate at the time we grew up to have such a wide range of of stuff we could listen to and and sort of learn and and play and enjoy
1: yeah well and and the thing was like at that time the popular thing was to, to be in one camp you know, like yes. that was, was like, if you liked R&B, then you couldn't like rock and roll. And if you mm. liked rock and roll, well, you couldn't like country, you know, and if you like yeah. country, you couldn't like jazz. Well, I got into jazz when I was young. And yeah. when I went to high school, I played in the, the orchestra. I played bassoon in the orchestra, but they had a mm. stage band that did all the swing stuff. And I played bass in that because they found out okay. I played bass guitar. There so I go. started learning stuff like the woodchopper's ball, you know, Woody Herman and stuff like that. And I was in my teens when I was doing that. So that the influence of that stuff, and to be to know it well, it it would opened up a whole new world of like, yes. oh wow, you know this. Uh, so that's all stuff that later you bring to the table. You know, when absolutely, you're, especially yeah. when you're writing your own stuff and you're, you know, and, and you've learned, you've had to learn how to read. You know, I learned to to read music in high school, and and because I could read at the time, I, I learned so many different styles. You that it made it made it so that when gigs came along, I could do them. I could say, yeah, yeah. I could do that, oh, you know? Great.
0: So then how did you make the jump from that to deciding you could actually make a living? Like, did you have a defining moment when you thought, you know, I could make a living out of this? Because most people do have similar experiences to what you just shared, but they just carry on into life and just go live their lives. What happened yeah. for you?
1: Well, I, you know, like I said, when I started playing country music, uh, after that that night that I... Did for the ambulance driver, uh, my name went in a, in, in a book, you know, mm. like somebody put me in their book, and then it got yes. passed around. Uh, mm. and people would call me and say, Are you, uh, you're Basil, you play bass, right? So, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, listen, I'm playing down at the Sagamore Tavern tonight, and I need a bass player. Uh, it's a, a six night gig, you know, we play Monday to Saturday, there's a matinee on Saturday, and the pay is 125. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be like. Okay. And at that time, my yeah. dad was my dad was making like 175, you know, yeah. and I was going to make 125 for playing music. Yes. Right. So yeah. I'd go and do it. And then, you know, they'd say, well, we've got more gigs. Do you want to do them? And it just kind of morphed into like, you know, when I got, I had a child when I was young and mm-hmm. I got married and I, and I thought like, well, that's going to be the end of my gigging. You know, I'm probably going to have to just get a job. Well, I got a job and I worked at on the construction at the Eaton Center doing doing drywall for like, I guess it was about a year, but I was still getting gigs every night. Right. So I, I played all the way through it every night. I was, you know, out in the bars until one o'clock and then I'd have to get up at seven o'clock and work on construction. But I bought, but I bought a house, you know, like it was, it was, it was great. Right. But uh, then after about a year of working on construction, I got laid off. But okay. I still had the all the gigs; they were still right. there.
0: Okay, so
1: I yeah. just kept playing, and then after after playing for about another two years, I just decided I'm not going to go back and get a, a construction yeah, okay. job. You know, like
0: uh, this yeah. is too much
1: fun, right? And
0: yeah, and, and, so you didn't uh, really have a defining moment; you just kind of it just kind of came along. It and, just and happened. You had gigs. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. that's cool. And, and yeah, I
1: I was always looking to be in a creative band. Like I didn't yeah. want I didn't want to just play covers. So I was yeah. always searching for you know people who were interested in writing music and uh, and so even when I was out working with with jobbing with we call it jobbing you know like you're out yeah. just playing gigs I was still always I always had a band that was doing original music yeah. and and that cool. band was working on writing songs and whatever yeah. it was yeah. Uh, yeah. whether it was when punk and new wave happened, that was a big time for that because that that's when you you didn't have to be a virtuoso to play that music. You know, you, you could, you could get in a band with a, you know, you would probably just bought an instrument you learned to play it six months ago and, and you could be out playing some shows. So for me, that was a great time because when that happened, I, I left doing the country bands and I joined this band called the sharks Hmm. And the Sharks, uh, the drummer was Cleve Anderson, who was actually Blue Rodeo's first drummer. I got together with this band, the Sharks, with a girl named Sherry Keane, who later on went on and had her own career and had a couple of hit singles, a a single called I Want You Back. But uh, we started playing around Toronto and we got popular very quickly. We ended up opening a lot of shows like for Devo, uh, for Split Ends. We went on tour with Rough Trade, opening for Rough Trade. And uh, we started playing concert halls, you know, and I was like, wow, this is like, <laughs> cool. this is awesome. This is not, you know, the grungy bars anymore, right? So and what
0: was the music? What was the genre?
1: It was like new wave. Okay. I guess you would yeah. say. This would be 1980, 1970. Yeah. I started with them in 79. Yeah. And we went 79 to 81.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: And then I had a, then for the next couple of years, I went back to playing country music. And then in 1984, I answered an ad in the paper, and it was Blue Rodeo. Right, right. And okay. It's, it, it, it was coincidental that they had already contacted the drummer that mm. uh, I had worked with before in the Sharks, Cleve Anderson. Anyway, they had asked Cleve, what's the guy in hey, – because, see, I knew of, I knew Jim and Greg before – when I was in the – the very first gig I did with the Sharks was at a place called The Edge in Toronto, which – is legendary place right the gary's Gary top and gary cormier had, had this very eclectic booking policy they had the police play there on their first trip oh. through uh or the second i think the second time through anyway uh you know they uh the first gig that i played with the sharks the opening act was this band called the Hi hmm. and that was jim and greg okay so i met them That's then okay. right yeah. but it wasn't yeah. until three years later that they were looking for a bass player and my name got mentioned and okay. Jim had had a piece of paper in his pocket that had a list of all the people who had answered the ad that he had put in the now magazine. Right. And when, yeah. uh, when Cleve, they said Cleve, they said, Hey, what about the guy in the sharks? What's he doing now? And Cleve said, Oh, Basil, I don't know. I haven't talked to him in a while. And Cleve, And Jim said, Basil, wait a minute. I think he called the ad and he pulled oh. out the list of people and my name yeah. was on it. Cool. So they, they were at the bamboo having a drink and they went to the phone and they phoned me and said, you're Basil from the sharks. I said, yeah. Hey, it's it's Greg from the high fives. I said, Oh, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and he said, Hey, we got Cleve as a drummer. Are you interested? You know? I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I'll pick you up tomorrow. You're a part, he goes, this is a Parkdale number, right? And he looked because he could tell by my number. He said, okay, wow. what's your address? I'll pick you up tomorrow. And we'll start. And the cool. next day I walked into the rehearsal space and kind of I'd say within 15 or 20 minutes of playing, we kind of knew we had a band.
0: You know? Oh, cool. Yeah. So just to put, put a cap on that, you you were there on the ground floor, and you've been there the whole time. You, there's yes. the three yeah. of you that have been the, the constant members of the band has been Greg yes. and Jim and you.
1: Yes. The Cleve uh, was, was there too. And then they had just come back from New York. They were living okay. in New York, Jim and Greg. And they yeah. had arrived back, and Greg had nowhere to live. So a friend of his, who he was working with in New York, had said, "Hey, listen, my brother has a place, and he probably has a spare room that you could stay in." And that brother was Bobby Wiseman, and he ended up being our keyboard player.
0: Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about the designation, like the like. Uh, Blue Rodeo to me has always been a little bit of an anomaly in the sense that, like, you're not a country band, like you were not a traditional country band, and the web no. your website says countrified rock band, and then some people say it's roots rock or folk rock or Canadiana. But to me, it, it it's interesting because you came in at a time when I guess it would have been the mid 80s when the whole musical landscape was all over the place. You had New Wave. Michael Jackson had just released Thriller a couple years ago. I mean, it was the whole musical landscape was just completely all over the place. And you guys kind of came up in the middle of all that.
1: Yeah, it was a time of vertical hair and synthesizers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you spin me round right, like a record baby right round. That kind of, you know, that was what was popular at the time. Uh, a yeah. flock of haircuts, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. as they used to say. I mean, I think the first band that I saw that was kind of not doing that was R.E.M. Hmm. You know, I remember seeing a video for R.E.M. and kind of going like, yeah, these guys aren't like all the other bands. They yeah. they had no synthesizer. It was back to guitars. They had an right. acoustic guitar. Heaven forbid an acoustic guitar in 1984. You know, yeah, <laughs> like because everything yeah. was was all you know synthesizers and programming was just becoming a thing, right. and you know, and loops and all of that stuff. And here was yeah. this band that was just strumming away and sounded like they got together in you know their parents' garage or something like that and. And, uh, you know, very art college style of music. And that appealed to us. We we wanted to, you know, we were, Greg was still listening to Neil Young records when I yeah. met him. Like he was still loving guitars. And that that's where the country came in. Because when he was in New York, he would go and see this guy Ned Sublette. And Ned Sublette was kind of countrified, but he was very cool, right? Uh, mm-hmm. He was like in the East Village, You know he was gay and he wrote a lot of songs that were kind of funny they were kind of punk there was a punk influence and there was a country influence you know
0: yeah he had this
1: one big (laughs) one song that was big of his was a, a song called Cowboys are frequently fond of each other, (laughs) Mm. which was like, uh, you know, at the time Greg said you'd go see him one night and he wouldn't have a bass player. He'd have a tuba player instead, you know, like he was a real (laughs) oddball. And that that was the time when things were starting to change in New York. And he said, like, the synthesizer thing was like, you know, it was getting tired and everyone kind of knew it. You know, everyone was like, yeah, I'm, I'm sick of this, you know, the stuff that's on the radio. Right. They wanted something different. And uh, Dwight Yoakam came along, too. And he was, you know, that brought the country into being kind of cool.
0: You know? Yes. I, I, Yeah. Good point. But the thing is with you guys is you never competed directly in anyone's sort of space. Like you were not a hardcore country band, but you didn't compete with the pop bands. You weren't going to take on Michael Jackson. You're not going to, you, you know, you, you had to kind of find your own path within all of that without competing sort of head to head with, with any of those particular bands. That's what struck me about Blue Rodeo. You just kind of came up, had these, well, try when try came out, obviously that was a game changer, but You know, just finding your way in in this massive shifting landscape of music without competing directly. I I don't know if I'm stating that quite the way. Yeah, no,
1: you're you're absolutely right. Uh, We followed our own path. You know, it was like if we liked it, that's what counted. You know, Mm -hmm. like we were liking guitars. Like I remember when we were recording our first album, Terry Brown was a producer, and Terry suggested that Bobby use some synthesizers and. Mm. I remember Greg just like almost lost his mind. He was like oh, okay. there is not going to be any synthesizers on this record, you know? <laughs> yeah. It just wouldn't have it because he said I'm so sick of that sound.
0: Uh, Which said, in retrospect was a smart move because that was very that's a very dated sound. As soon as you hear those, you know exactly to yes. the year almost <laughs> what it's. Exactly. What it is. So, well, let me ask you this then. Did, when you guys started, like did you have a plan? Did you say, well, "Here's what we're going to do," or did you just kind of let it evolve?
1: It evolved. I mean, okay. there was an element of like the lyrical content that Greg was striving for. You know, he was a huge Leonard Cohen fan at the time, and okay. Dylan and Elvis Costello was in the mix a lot. You know, uh, <laughs> very uh, strong lyricists, and and that appealed to them. I brought the country in. Like I was, I'm the guy that had had the most experience with country music.
0: Okay, like,
1: I knew a million country songs, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they knew a few they wanted to start to explore country a, a little more i because i remember one of rehearsal where greg wanted to do that's the way love goes the old lefty frizzell song they they had the wrong chords right and mm, i said okay. hey you don't have, you're not playing that that's not the chord progression that that lefty frizzell or merle haggard who covered it later that you, you you're missing a chord and i showed yeah. them the chord that they were missing and they were like oh oh yeah we didn't we never listened to it that close like I said, oh, well, you know, I play these songs every night in country bars, right? (laughs) So, like, so I was the guy who kind of, you know, brought that to the table. Like, I would suggest certain records for for the country-ish type things. Like, here, we should listen. You got to hear Graham Parsons. I remember saying to Greg, like, he he had not heard Graham Parsons when we started Mm. the band. He didn't know anything about the Burrito Brothers. I said, oh, the Flying Burrito Brothers are, like, the template of country rock. Between them and Poco... You know, that's the reason that there was a band like the Eagles, because the right. Eagles are just, you know, a splinter group of Poco and, uh, you know, the Flying Burrito Brothers. And yeah, I, so he, I said, you have to buy the Gilded Palace of Sin. It's the greatest record ever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he went out and bought it. And uh, then we that became his favorite record. And that's Great. when the, okay. the country started to seep in a little more.
0: So what struck me with that then is you didn't start as a studio band like you wanted to play live gigs, but then again, you're you're a little bit ill-defined, if if I could say. So where did you play? Like what did you do for gigs?
1: The thing is, is in Toronto there was a really healthy live music scene at the time. Yes,
0: but there was what a genre? Of... Like like you had to kind of find your way, right?
1: Yeah. Well, there was see, there was one guy in Toronto who was doing country music downtown on the Cool Suit. The Cool Strip, right? Uh, Mm. Queen West, where everybody was hanging out. Uh, There was still all those synthesizer bands, and everyone, you know, was grooving on world music and uh, reggae and all of that stuff. But there was this one guy named Handsome Ned. And Handsome Ned was playing Hank Williams-type country music. Only he he revved it up a lot, and he had a real insurgency in it, you know? And uh, he kind of went back into the all of this Lefty Frizzell and all of that, the catalog of all of this traditional old country music and played that, but he played it with a band that was all punk rock players, oh, all ex-guys from the, the Demicks, right? Yeah. Like Steve Koch and Jimmy Weatherspoon on guitar and drums. They were in the Demicks before that. So it was basically punk rock musicians becoming country, doing this kind of cow punk, right? Yeah. And we f- somehow fit in with that group of people. They opened their arms to us. In fact, Ned was the first one to say, hey, you know, why don't you come and play my honky tonk hardwood floor, right? Uh, He had a radio show. And so we went on his radio show and played. And then, you know, we played the Cameron House because that was the venue that you were, if you were experimenting with something, you could do it at the Cameron, right? Because that that was the place where it didn't matter if it was reggae, whether it was funk, whether it was rock, jazz, country, they would book everybody. And, okay cool and and you could go there and do your own thing and it was accepted and this and would have been
0: 83
1: 80 82 83 later than that this would be 85 okay but the start of 85 was when we started playing regularly uh we had rehearsed through the late 84 and our first yeah. gig was february 9th 85 okay we played the rivoli and yeah. oddly enough Me and the drummer, our band, the Sharks, were really popular. But so was Jim and Greg's band, the Hi-Fis. So word kind of spread on the street in Toronto that there was this new band, and it was two of the Sharks and two of the Hi-Fis. And and we were playing. We had this gig at the Rivoli, and it it wasn't that big a place. The Rivoli only probably holds you know 200 people, maybe at max. Mm. And uh, so the first gig we did, we just put up some posters on the street, and we had a full house.
0: Oh wow. Because
1: word of mouth had kind of said, Hey, go check these guys out. They're the new thing. They're they're brand yeah. new. And we know them all, right? So our first gig, we I remember walking in the back door and looking, pulling the curtain back from the stage and looking out. And I looked at Cleve and I said, Hey, Cleve, it's full. Right? He thought mm. I was joking, right? <laughs> he thought, Yeah, you're putting me on, right? And he looked out and he went, Oh, man, it is. And we went on and we had a great night. We played okay. really well. And yeah. uh, Handsome Ned opened the show for us. And his guitar player, Steve Koch, I'll never forget, he came back afterwards and he said to us, he, he walked into the dressing room and he said, you guys are going to be huge. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll nice never hair. forget that. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, I still see him around. And I, I always yeah. say that too. I said, you were the first guy, Steve.
0: Oh, you cool. Were like... So how did you get your first record deal then? It was with the risk records? Is that how you pronounce it?
1: It was called Risque Disc.
0: Risque Disc.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that was our manager's label.
0: Okay. So that's how so it kind of morphed into hey, you guys gotta get into the studio and record some tunes here?
1: This guy started following us around. What what happened with him? It's a funny story actually. He was he he was part of the big hair movement. Uh, he managed a band called the Arrows. Okay. And the Arrows had just come back and lost some money touring in uh, Europe, opening for Berg. Hmm. And I think it cost them a lot of money, and they broke up. Okay. And he had told his wife that if things didn't go well with the Arrows, he would quit music and go back to uh, real estate. Well, hmm. he had a little office in the basement of the Horseshoe Tavern, and that's where he ran his, his uh, management out of okay anyway things didn't go well they broke up and he was going down he went down to the horseshoe to clean out his office move the desk out and tell them they can have the room back and he didn't need it anymore which he did and on the way out he was walking up the stairs and we were on stage playing he stopped and he watched us he watched us for about a half hour when we finished playing he came up and he said told us he was getting out of the music business he said but i'm a manager I like you guys, you need help, and I think I can help you out. He said, uh, you know, I'm not going to be your manager because I'm getting out of the business, but as a last thing to do, I can help you out a bit. I can introduce you to some people and whatnot. So anyway, the next time we saw him, he he brings his producer, Terry Brown, right? And I guess Terry Brown and him had some ideas that they wanted to have a record label. Hmm. He he was going to go back into real estate but he didn't want to leave the music business totally. He was going to start a record later. Cool. So Terry Brown heard us and said, I've, he said, uh, listen, because I'm, you know, uh, I had, he goes, I've got a big hit on the radio now with this band, The Cutting Crew. We have a, have a song called I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight. And he said, it's a big hit. And I produced 10 Rush albums. He mm. said, so people are giving me free studio time. I'd like to take you guys in to the studio for some of the free time that I have okay, and and do some demos and see how they sound. And then maybe we'll shop it to the big labels.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Cool. And we were kind of like, Oh, you'd do that for us. You know, like he's going, well, we, yeah, like we're, we're actually starting a label and we're looking for artists and yeah. we'd like to sign you guys to our label, very cool. you know, wow. and we were like, Oh, well that's, that's cool. He said, well, it's not a real official label yet, but you know, we're going to get there right wow. so all of a sudden within the next couple of weeks we were in different studios around town recording we wow. you know, we get a day here and a day there yeah. we did a, a four song demo and then you know we started giving that to certain people and john our manager he was really interested in uh, getting warner brothers interested right because okay. he knew bob Roper, yeah. who was who was at at warner at the time and uh you know so then the rest after that, they shopped They shopped it around, and they got a bit of interest, but no deal or anything. And then uh, we did a video, and they said, well, you got to do a video, because right now, a with, uh, band without a video isn't a band.
0: Yes, in the so, mid-'80s, for sure. Yeah.
1: You know, so we shot yeah. a video, and that led us to you know, getting signed to Warner.
0: Okay, cause that, that's, so that, that EP sort of morphed into Outskirts, which…
1: Those songs ended up on outskirts, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, I got yeah, you. But we
1: ended up guys- pre-recording them all, like cause okay, they were yeah. just demos. Like he said to us when we were recording, he said, "If I had more time, you know, we would have worked harder on this." And yeah. then when we when we finally got the deal, he just said, "Well, now that we got the deal, we'll just start from scratch. We'll go back and." do yeah. everything over again.
0: Which that time, I guess that was good. That was a good thing to do, right? Because... Well, we had
1: written more, no, Greg had, Greg, and Jim had written more songs as well, okay. right? So they yeah. were like going, yeah, those songs, we're not really sure that those songs that we demoed, we, if we want them on the record, you know, like they were like last week's songs, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like writers get tired of their own stuff quickly. And, and Greg didn't feel uh, like, I think, you know, a couple of tunes that he had contributed, he didn't want, those to be on the first record. He wanted to save okay. them. There's one he wanted to save. And he, he just kind of thought, like, no, no, let's start over. So yeah. when we when we got the deal, uh, when they finally, you know, uh said to us, Here, we're giving you a credit uh to go to the studio. Because they don't yeah. didn't actually give us the money. They said, You can go to the studio and we'll pay the bill. So okay. go in there and I start recording. Right. Yeah. So we went into what was used to be RCA, but it was then called McLear place. It was okay. the, the best studio in town at the time.
0: And you had a producer as well. So you were we had an
1: internationally recognized producer. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so we were good to go. Yeah. Yeah. We went in there and we, we cut our first album. Uh, you know, it was a hectic time because Jim's first son, Devin was born during the recording of that record.
0: Mm. Okay. And, uh, you
1: yeah. know, we and, and our good buddy, handsome Ned overdosed. Yeah. Oh. and died right oh,
0: yeah. and so it was
1: a very you know it was a yeah. time time in toronto where a lot of things were changing and it was it kind of freaked us out a bit but uh yeah we but recorded the record and uh, yeah. and then you know we started the college circuit we got yeah. somehow managed to get tossed onto the college circuit. And we played okay. every university and frosh week event that you could imagine.
0: <laughs> oh, good. But the thing is, I mean, to your credit, you guys, you guys had it. I mean, try, I remember hearing try for the first time and I thought, okay, that that's the kind of song that every band wants. And most bands never get, right. You got to have that defining sort of breakout song or Rose Carter glasses is nice too, but try to me when I heard that, I thought, okay, that's a great song. That right. I, I
1: instantly was taken. But, you know, when I first heard the songs, I knew we were we were contenders. I knew that. Yeah. And I, I remember I had a friend come and see me who I hadn't seen in a long time. And he was a musician as well. And he came down to the horseshoe to see me to have a chat. And he watched the end of we were doing two sets at the time. He watched the first the end of the first set. And we did try as the last song. Yeah and when we got off when I got off the stage I went over to him I said hey Jim how you doing he said i'm good he said hey man that last song you did whose song is that i said oh, it's ours it's an original he said oh man you got a winner there yeah. so and i, well, I kind of knew then i was like yeah, yeah this is that's how i felt when i heard it too you know, well I that's thought, the like- thing
0: because lots of bands go through like all the things that you just described i've heard that story a hundred times but the problem that they have is at the end of it they don't have that career defining song or that song that sort of punches you through where yeah. people say okay this band has got something here that this song is a legit tune because a lot of bands never got that sort of I don't know, not a mega hit, but just that song that defines them, and then they miss uh, out. Then the ride, the I instantly
1: over. knew the with the <laughs> with, with these guys that the the songwriting was yeah. of a high caliber, and that's yeah. the reason I joined the band. I got the demo that they did in New York, given to me to learn, listen to, right? Yeah. And it had four songs on it. Uh, the song there was one called "Question of Love," and then "Rose Colored Glasses" was on it too. Yeah. But right away, I listened to the songwriting, and I kind of went, "Oh, these guys." They know how to write songs. Yeah. And and at that time, there wasn't a lot of people. There was a lot of great musicians and there was really good bands. The songwriting was the thing that they didn't. You know, you you could go and see a band. that was great, but they're playing all other people's material. And that's not going to get you anywhere.
0: Well, and the other thing that that to add on to that is you got to follow it up then because there's a, again there's a hundred other bands that that got their shot and they got one song that's pretty decent but then you got to have another album and you got to have another few songs right so you guys followed that up within a couple of years you got How Long and and Diamond Mine and stuff I mean
1: well this is the the, the uh, when you have two strong writers in the band yeah that makes it you know so that you know when one has a hit the other guy wants a hit too right yeah really. So they, they, they really work hard to you know yeah. like the songs just kept coming i like yeah our sound checks you know when we first started like touring in ontario like just around ontario our sound checks were always three and four hours because we were basically they were rehearsals because yeah. we had new songs and then yeah, you know we'd you walk go. in and greg say okay here and he'd show us a song and then we'd start rehearsing it and jim had you know, come in and see. I got one too, and we'd rehearse his song, and it, it would take up like three and four hours. It drove yeah. our crew guys crazy because, yeah. you know, most bands can get away with you know a ten minute sound check. They go up, and make yeah. sure everything's working, and then then they go eat. You know, yeah. That's but for we'd sure. be on the we'd be on the stage from like you know. There's times where we, you know they'd say, "Hey, the doors are opening now. You guys got to get off the stage," you know, yeah, because <laughs> we just turned them into rehearsals.
0: You know, backing up those tunes and then coming out again with more. I mean, you know, you know how the world is. They're very fickle, right? And what have you done for me lately? And yeah, they're not bad. They got one good song, but then you guys followed that up with with Casino. You got Till I Am myself. I remember hearing that for the first time, going, yeah. "Okay, this is cool." It was more up tempo and a good sort of country rock song, but more leaning to rock than I don't know. It's hard to categorize. And then Trust yeah. Yourself is is awesome great song so so you were able to again you got you got to have the combination punch right you got to have the next album and then the next album and then within two years you got lost together which is yeah um, i
1: mean you know (laughs) all the influences that we had were kind of pouring out of us you know like you can hear the fact that when you listen to till i am myself again you know i can hear the birds you know yeah. like i hear turn 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 you know well, what diamond I mean? mine is almost guitar. a 60s
0: diamond mine's almost a 60s vibe right
1: well, people people used to ask me is that a doors song <laughs> yeah i know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love and it so you know we were our influences on our sleeve in the early days yeah. i think it, it, as it as we progressed we found our own sound yeah. you know we found who we were but uh It was a mixture of all of those like you know there was you know one part neil young and everything we did you know because we were into like like guitar solos and uh it's funny that you know greg greg has kind of become pals with neil young now right oh cool they they actually hung out over easter right last year anyway uh that that was a big influence uh that kind of like uh you know we were big influence bands like the band you know that were
0: We're just
1: singing and playing great songs. That's what counted to us. It was a songwriting more than the style of music. You know, uh, we could uh, approach different songs with different styles. Like say, let's, let's try a country version of this. You know, like even when we worked with Meryl Streep in, uh, in the movie, they brought in the song uh, for us that they wanted. It was a Shel Silverstein song called, um, I'm checking out of heartbreak hotel. And, uh, they, gave the, they just sent us a demo of Shell playing it on a piano. And so when we went to meet, when they actually came to hear us play, they said, well, what do, you, what do you got? And we said, well, we've got one version that sounds like the Rolling Stones are doing it, and the other one's more of a straight country one. And Meryl was like, oh, well, let's hear the Rolling Stones one. Well, we played it, and she huh. goes, oh, I like that. And then when we played the country version, we said, well, we got one that's more straight country. And uh, Mike Nichols, who was directing the movie, kind of said, "You know, I think that the uh, the country one really suits it." He said, "But I think what we should do is, when we finish the country one and the credits are rolling, we should go into the next version. We should do oh. the rock and roll one, right?" Interesting. But, and so it ended up in the wow. movie two different versions of it, wow. right? which was great, right?
0: That's but super th- cool. th- that,
1: that's how we would do. You know, sometimes songs would would start out as you know a folk song. And they would end up being more of a rock song by a, by the end of it because we would we would do that we would say yeah. let's try it let's try to do it differently change it to a waltz you know
0: yeah yeah and your Stuff comparison like to Neil Young is great because that's totally right I mean he wasn't led around by anything he would play country no. play rock play sixties influence whatever who cares I'm exactly. doing it the way I feel it and that's my style so yes. But so then let me ask you about that. In the early 90s, so you did the the Five Days album in, in 93. I guess it hasn't hasn't hit me yet, it has got a mandolin. Really great, great song, nice harmonies and stuff. So again, mm-hmm. it's you've got the country. The mandolin always reminds me of that Celtic influence too, almost. But it's but you didn't go there, you didn't you didn't go into that genre too much. But that stuff sounds really good and and you did well with that. But then there was the the landscape and music was changing too. So in your next album, uh, nowhere to hear, like it's a little heavier. You got a little heavier guitar in there and stuff. Were you influenced by by the shifting landscape at all? There,
1: possibly. You know, uh, we were not unaware of the music that was coming out around us. Okay. Yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, we're never trying to copy anybody that was that was else that was popular at the time. Like mm-hmm. we never set out to kind of go. Let's, you know. But I think the fact, like when Nirvana broke, we put out. 5 days in July around that time and we we started out at Greg's farm to make a, a more of a rock record everything was bleeding so much at Greg's farm that we decided we had this whole we had just come back from Australia our first trip to Australia and we were we had rehearsed a lot in Australia because you know every day the sound checks were really long we had a lot of new songs we had enough for two albums yeah and one was going to be a rock album and then we had these things we were going to do—an acoustic EP. That's what Five Days was right. supposed to be—an acoustic okay. EP. Yeah. But we recorded all these songs, at, and the ones that really worked at Greg's farm were the quiet ones, the the more acoustic stuff. And we took it to the record company, and you know there was about twelve songs that were finished. And we said to them, "Yeah, this is our EP. We're going to release this EP." And they listened to it, and they said, "We think you've got an album here." We'd rather just release it, another album and we think you've you've already got it. it's finished. So huh. we put out five days and it was our you know our biggest selling record at the time uh,
0: Excellent. It, yeah and it's really really good song, bad timing and hasn't hit me yet and stuff I mean again yeah they become part of the musical landscape in Canada and, and kind of get in people's hearts and and it, it was just part of the I guess the, the growth of the band but still being able to, to come up with stuff that people want to hear and that's that's strong really strong
1: yeah yeah i mean i you know five days is to me uh was one of the happiest accidents ever you know like because we uh we didn't intend on doing that as a record like as a full length record but yeah i you know i have talked to people now since you know and they say like oh man you know like that record was the one i got closest to like where you know it's it's an intimate record and people yeah. you know really uh love to listen to it late at night you know it's so oh, before i go to bed i have to put on five days you know and yeah I think like,
0: well oh, that's cool you know yeah like, well bad timing is a just you know really reflective just yeah it's a gets, great song it gets you right yeah so is it right you 16 albums you guys have done all together is
1: that how, oh yeah? I think
0: it's 16. I was counting, but... but I have the, lost count. I
1: honestly have yeah. lost count. Yeah. I really but I was have.
0: thinking of the longevity of the band, too, because because you weren't slotted, you know, like you, you sort of made your way through all of that and you weren't sort of pigeonholed, that it's it's uh, allowed for the longevity. Is that a fair assessment, do you think?
1: I do, yes. I think that, you know, kind of going, our following our own path, you know, uh, it was very weird. Like, we saw a whole genre... Develop around us, you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Like, first of all, we were doing this thing, and like we'd be touring the states, and we'd always have these people coming up to us, you know, going like, "Hey, you guys yeah. are fantastic. Y'all ever heard of this band Uncle Tupelo?" You know, yeah. <laughs> I say, yeah. "Yeah, yeah, we heard of them. But yeah, yeah, we like them, and you're a lot like them, right?" Yeah, and that became Wilco, you know, and we became okay. friends with all of them, and. uh we you know bump into them on the road, and then they became Wilco and Sunvolt. But like at that time, they they said, "Yeah, there's this whole new scene. It's called the No Depression movement, right?" Oh, well, of course, <laughs> that ended up becoming Alt Country, you know. Okay, yeah. And there was no name for it at the time, but there was the Jayhawks, Wilco, Blue Rodeo. There's seven or eight bands out yeah. out there at the time. Guadalcanal Diary, you know. Okay, a, a few bands, that, and they we were all considered. With part of this, there was a magazine called No Depression, and it was available in, you know, and Bloodshot Records was kind of doing the cowpunk thing and that. So it was considered right. this whole new genre of music, right? Where yeah. you wouldn't hear a synthesizer on any of those records, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, I remember one time playing in Santa Fe and, uh, some woman, I we were lo- the gear was being loaded in. And I was standing out out by the bus, and some woman asked us, came up, and said, "What kind of music are you guys?" And the promoter <laughs> of the show was standing beside me, right? Yeah. And uh, the promoters and and she she kind of said, uh, "Are you like that uh, this uh, new stuff like No Depression? It's called right?" Because she, yeah. she was obviously familiar with it. And and the promoter looks at her and she says, "These guys." are the first band. They're the first one of that. They wow. start, because she said something like, oh, you're are you like, those bands like Wilco and the Jayhawks, and he he yeah. said, they were the first.
0: These yeah, guys there you were the first.
1: And I thought about it, and I thought, I guess we were, you know, because we predate the, you know, I'm good friends with the Jayhawks, right? Yeah. We predate them by about a year. Like right. We started a year before them. Now, they were doing the same style of music and everything, but, you know, I, we all kind of had, it seems like we all have yeah. the same idea at the same time. Yeah, it was like, there you go. It, it well, wasn't so much we knew what we wanted to play, but we knew what we didn't want to play. <laughs> yeah. Well, and <laughs> you, you know? didn't
0: get pigeonholed. That's the, I think is the yes. key because if you were a hardcore country and competing directly in that space or any of the other spaces, then you get pigeonholed, and then oh, when, when the me. things change, then you change, then you're gone. Right? Which is- yeah. Well, we
1: we you know we would be added to so many country festivals, hmm. and the first thing that we would be told was that we weren't country, you yeah. know, like everyone, that, all of these other artists on the bill goes, you guys can't really call yourself country. Yeah. I said, no, we don't. I said, yeah. But, you know, the reason that we're on this bill is because, first of all, we had hit records. Yeah. And the second thing was we were for the young kids because we played a lot of, like, campsites and trailer parks and stuff like that in yeah. the West Coast, right? Like, So you'd be playing out, you know, in a trailer park north of Edmonton. Right where there's a big festival and they'll have like you know people like Tracy Bird and you know all these different country artists and we'd be on there and we were on there to appeal to the ki- the younger folks yeah. right they're, they'd have like the older gut crowd would be for the more hardcore country if their Merle Haggard was playing we'd yes. be on the bill but we would be you know there as the uh, kind of the token well they're they're kind of country but they're not you know yeah but they're they appeal to the younger audience. And so but it's
0: a broader appeal. I mean it's 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 sort it of like is. the Eagles. You know, I've asked that question. Like if the Eagles came out today, they would be more considered a country band than a rock band, I would think. Yes, absolutely. Of, you know, so yeah. Yeah.
1: and I would always you know, I remember even all of the uh, when I said Australia, we went to Australia and people said what kind of music? And I'd say well, basically we're a country rock band, but you know, there's a lot of seventy seven in there, you know, yeah. which meaning like like if you if you listen to the talking heads and you listen to the clash and that we all did you know yeah. that was in our music too it's yeah. all in there so it was like yeah we're a country rock band but there's but, there's also some, <laughs> some 77 in there you know yeah
0: so, well, it's funny. I saw you. We, we were doing shows at SaskX, I think in two thousand eight, it was. I think something like that. You guys were on the bill, so we came over and watched you. You were in the grandstand. We were we were doing. Uh, we were one of the bands in the in the midway. Oh, who did you play with? Doing our show band. Well, our band is March Hare, the March Hare March band Hare. out of Vancouver. Oh, okay, and we're a show band, right. and we've we've done real well out here. And oh, cool. uh we were doing. We were in the in the at SaskX just doing the uh, grandstand inside and you guys were in the big shows. So we came over and watched you. I think it was about 15 years ago, but you guys have toured lots. And I was going to ask you about the States. Like did, how much did you break in the States? And did you ever consider, you know, taking it to the next level and trying to move down there and sort of take that market on, in a more serious way.
1: Um, it was talked about, but I don't know. It's, I'm still confounded why we didn't break wide open in the States, but, uh, yeah. When you know, like I said, once that alt country thing happened, we got slotted right in with all those other bands, yeah. You know, once that happened, there was lots of places for us to play and everything,
0: but uh,
1: you know, we 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 did right, re- we did okay, we just didn't get on like the major radio stations in Canada, we leaped onto the, the, the mainstream radio stations, yeah. That didn't happen in the states, we got okay. we were always on college radio and uh, the more eclectic. Okay. Uh, stations down there and it never kind of crossed into the mainstream. So, so what
0: would it have taken to do that? Do you think?
1: I don't know. Uh, like yeah. if, if I knew, I mean, it, it takes a lot of commitment from the record company and
0: and money, you know, and money
1: too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also I gotta say, it's not all their fault. Some of it's our fault too. Like, you know, life got in the way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, now you have a band of guys, you know, we're, we were like, By the time we started to try and tackle the states, we were over thirty, and you get, you know, people have kids at home and stuff like that, and and you're spending six months, seven months on the road is a tough thing to do. Oh, yeah. And and the tours that we got offered sometimes would be just like, you know, I I see Jim kind of looking and goes, if I do this, I'm going to be divorced by the time I get home, kind of. Yeah, you know. um, 'Cause they want well, uh, they want you to go out on long, long tours, right? Like we did one with Edie Brickel and the new Bohemians and it was three yeah. and a half months. Right?
0: Yeah. And so. you didn't
1: come home once in that three yeah. and a half months. You come home, and it's like you're a stranger.
0: Yeah, you know? for sure. I, I couldn't handle and, that life. That's the life I couldn't have lived. But but the yeah. other thing too, if you're trying to force your band into a market, you know, you're not you're not playing. Concerts for thousands of people every night. Either like some of those venues are quite small, and you're kind of wondering, what am am I doing here? You know, like what? How does it advance my career to be playing some bar in upstate New York? On that's it would be so strange
1: too. Like you know, yeah, like maybe playing you know in Toledo one night in a in a bar that you know has holds 110 people. Yeah, and then then we'd cross the border and we play at Massey Hall the next night.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, yeah, crazy. And,
1: you know, after a while, it just got, like. But I but to me, from my vantage
0: point, you know, like, like yeah, you can tour and do that, but building your career is is based on the radio. I mean, you got to get that radio hit, and you guys certainly had the production and the songs. I mean,
1: you know, and songs like for ballads, like a, a song like "Bad Timing." How did that yeah, not get great. airplay in the states? I yeah, mean, to me. Sure. It should have been a big hit.
0: You yeah, know? yeah but, I would but agree. By
1: that time, the record companies that had, you know we got passed around a lot on record companies. We started at Atlantic, and then you know we ended up on this label, Discovery, and you know they folded after doing one mm. record with us. And yeah. we just we just didn't get the record company support yeah. down there that we should have.
0: Well, I know uh, you know I talked to Colin Nairn one time with Barney Bentall, and he said like, like Canada a limited market, right? There's there's only maybe 30 million people at the time. And you go back and forth yeah. across Canada a bunch of times. And then that's pretty much, and he said they got to the point where they were just done with the, the traveling and the the same sort of gigs again and stuff. And if you can't break to the next level, it sort of burns you out in, yeah. in the circuit. You guys were able to work around that as well. Again, speaking of of being able to adjust and, and find your place. So you, it didn't burn you out the same way that it did, I think, with them. But still, it can get you, right?
1: The fact that we we appeal to a, a wide demographic, yeah, made it so that we could tour Canada. And I remember talking to the guys in Sloan about this, right? Because yeah. they were going like when we realized that you know we were still touring the states and everything, but we we're playing small clubs in the states. But we come up to Canada and we do a tour. We did a tour of Canada where we did eighty shows.
0: Yeah, right? wow.
1: Yeah, and uh, and they could not Patrick. From the sloan couldn't believe it he goes did you really do 80 shows on the last tour and i said i think it was more like 82 83 something he went really because our last tour of canada he said it was 16 shows he said we played the big cities and there's only so many of them yeah and i said that's the difference of blue rodeo is like because we could go and play penticton
0: yeah
1: at the arena and yeah. and do really well and because we're not appealing to just that alternative rock crowd.
0: There you go. You know? That's like, right. Yeah.
1: Like we've got, you know, our, our audience is like from eight to 80, you yeah, know, like we, sure. we could, the whole family could come, you know, yeah. uh, they, and you can play small towns and, you know, smaller cities. Like we could do seven or eight shows in a province of like BC, yeah. you know, yeah. whereas great. Sloan would do two. They They'd do Victoria and they would do, uh, uh, Vancouver. And then next show would be Calgary, whereas not with us, we would be doing Kelowna, Kamloops, and who knows what else—all sorts of different places. Because if they, I said, I said to him, I said. We have in Canada, wherever there's an arena, we've played it. <laughs> we've played it yeah, no, Good for you. you. Know. That's,
0: that speaks well of you guys. And of course it's the songs and the longevity and, and the, the broad appeal. Those, those things I think are the key elements. So I know we're running a little bit short of time, but so can I do a rapid yeah. fire? I, I got a few sure. other questions. I wanted to ask you, um, do you, did you have a political or social message in any of your music that you wanted to portray?
1: Oh, I don't think so. I okay. think that, uh, politically you know we're, we're all on We all got our own ideas politically but uh you know we're basically kind of a politically a bit left-leaning
0: i just know. wondered if Probably, that made well, it one of my it. friends
1: says oh yeah you guys are woke
0: yeah well it just <laughs> it made its way into your songs and all but uh,
1: <laughs> uh but yeah, it did yes uh you know i mean there's songs like god and country for example which is yeah. a song about oliver north right and Great. okay and his whole iran contra fiasco and everything yeah, and you okay. know i mean yeah. We did have political views and that, but uh, I mean, uh, not like, you know, not so strong like the Clash or something like that, right. where we wore it on our sleeve or anything. You, no, know? you don't want
0: to alienate part of, you know, when you're in small town Alberta, you don't want to alienate your audience oh, before man. you come. We on.
1: already, we would get so much, you know, like we were supposed to do a show in Edmonton with Neil Young. And uh, the fact that we had kind of supported him and he was going on about, you know the carbon
0: right footprint okay. and everything yeah. and that
1: and uh you know a lot of people you know would be going online and trashing us right, right saying okay. we we're hypocrites and all yeah. of this stuff and you know yeah. so i, I never like to get too deep into that you know yeah, i just no, I think sorry. like i'd rather just make the music and uh yeah.
0: When you write songs, like, are you chasing hit songs, or, or like, when you guys get together, do you ever do any like band writing or talk about the direction of the songs or, or what you're trying yeah, to? Yeah, oh yeah,
1: not not so much politically though. Like, uh, no, no, I just mean in general,
0: know, just chasing in hit general, songs. yeah, or,
1: like not, not so much hit songs, but like you know, we'll, we'll use references of like, hey, I was listening to this thing the other night, and there was you know, and I heard this, you know, there are certain bands that really was, were influencing me, for example, that I think I brought. Things to the table where I go like you know the, there's this band named Ockerville River and I really love this one thing that they did and I I'd, I'd make a suggestion that I yeah. of something that I heard them do and yeah. we would incorporate it our own way it wouldn't sound like them but right. the idea came from them. You know? Yeah. Uh, cool. Something that they did, you know? So uh, you, you blur little things in that, you know? Like sometimes yeah. Greg would say, you know, like, I want to make this like the Dylan and the band, uh, you know, before the flood kind of thing. And uh, it's going to, I want it to have this kind of vibe.
0: cool okay
1: and then we would go with that that's that's a starting point where we end up who knows you
0: know the reason i ask that is because you know certain like you know i talked to jim valance i mean he was the the ultimate mercenary right like write songs you know i'm going to write songs for people for a specific thing whatever Um, other guys are more like singer songwriters are writing what they feel in inside themselves and then the commercial success comes or it doesn't but they're not sort of adjusting their songwriting to focus on commercial success is what i'm saying that's blue
1: rodeo that's who blue rodeo doesn't chase or yeah you know okay. they're they're just like jim and greg write what they like what they know and what they feel you know if something influences them yeah they'll uh they'll go there you know they'll say oh yeah like like i remember jim saying one time yeah i was listening to that ron says you know ron Sexmith lived on my street right yeah and yeah. and he said hey, don't, when you see ron tell him uh He's got that song, Full Proof. He goes, Well, I just wrote a song. He goes, I was inspired by that song, and uh, I wrote this, this song called Bulletproof, right? Oh, cool. And, yeah. and I remember telling Ron, and Ron was like, Really? He was so thrilled. You know? He goes, <laughs> Jim Jim wrote
0: that. He was influenced by me? I said, Yeah.
1: yeah. He goes, that's cool. Oh, he goes, Oh, you made my day, Basil. Yeah. Like,
0: oh, it's funny. Um, you
1: know, so sometimes you borrow things, you know. Yeah, well, people, for sure. You know?
0: Yeah, influences. So tell me about uh, some of the people that you had the opportunity to sort of rub shoulders with. And I see Leo, Levon Helm, you got to do a little thing, and Ronnie Hawkins and those guys.
1: Yeah, I recorded with those guys. Like, it's still one of the thrills of my life, you know. Yeah. Um, I went to the Bathhouse, which is a tragically hip studio mm-hmm. in Kingston. Uh, Colin Linden called me up. I was on my way to Nashville to record with some of the guys in Wilco because Bob Egan had joined our band okay. and Bob Egan was in Wilco. And he said, Hey, listen, Ken Krumer, the drummer from Wilco and John were in Nashville and we were going to go down and just, just mess around in the studio. They had some studio time and we were, don't know what we were going to do, but we were going to have a bit of fun. I get this call and it's Colin Linden saying, Hey, Basil, I've got a session for you this week and uh, you've got to do it. said i can't do it colin i'm going to nashville and he said no no basil you've got to do this session i can't tell you much about it but you've got to do it i said colin i can't i'm going to nashville to record with wilk he said okay i'm going to tell you this the session leave on hell is a drummer (laughs) i said okay where's the session
0: (laughs) (laughs) next question (laughs) wow so what year would that have been Probably 2007. Okay, because Levon's been gone now for yeah. a few years, right? Yeah. Well, good for uh, you. Anyway,
1: sir. it was a couple of years before he died. He had he had gone through the throat cancer thing already.
0: Yeah.
1: And I remember you said, if I get my voice back, cock, I'm never singing a goddamn weight again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw him
1: about three months after that. He played at Massey Hall and he did okay. the weight. <laughs> oh, good. yeah, there you go.
0: Well, you have to. I mean. Come on, yeah, man.
1: I know. But anyway, you know, well, I got the call, and I just was like,
0: no, that's cool. "Who's on
1: the session?" So it was me and Richard Bell, who Richard Bell played with Janis Joplin, and he was he was a member of the band at the end. So uh, me and Richard Bell and Colin Linden and Von Helm—that yeah. was the rhythm wow. section for cool. Ronnie Hawkins' next record, yeah. so to speak, right? Yeah, right. It's the one he, they wanted to do, and uh, yeah, we went out there and we recorded about twelve songs. Yeah, it was just. It was so much fun to just hang out with Levon and play with
0: him. Well, every yeah, day talk and about and all the history and stuff. And so yeah. you never you never played with Ronnie other than that, though, I guess, see?
1: I didn't play in his band ever, but I did play like at kind of guest spots. Like yeah. he got okay. up and he got up and sang a couple of songs with us. You know, sometimes when you're on a festival, like this has happened to us. So Bruton Cummings got up and did a couple of songs with us one oh, night too. Cool.
0: He, nice. he got up
1: and did American Woman yeah. and uh uh Shaking All Over. And yeah. uh Cool. Randy Bachman would do the same thing. Like, he said, Hey, why don't I come and sit in with you guys? So, oh, you know, good. we get him up to play Diamond Mine and uh, like a hurricane. Right? Yeah. That kind of Very thing cool. happens, you know. Yeah. Um, I, that's the only time I had played with Ronnie other than that.
0: Uh, yeah. Was
1: he got, he would get up and do uh, Mary Lou or, you know. You Some got two, in Windsor.
0: You, know? you did a couple of tunes with Chris Christopherson, is that right?
1: Oh yes, I played three times with Chris Christopherson. It's, oh, nice. That's another. That's that's my the, the second biggest thrill of my life. There you go. Then, uh, <laughs> uh, We got to play with him at Ronnie Hawkins' going away party. Ronnie Hawkins, when he left his farm, the Hawkstone Farm, yeah, he had a one last party, hmm. and it was in the afternoon, and we were on our way to Mattawa, the Jim Cuddy band, to do a gig, and. Uh, our driver, Carl, he used to drive uh, Ronnie Hawkins all the time. He said, okay. hey, listen, the Hawks uh, having the big party today. And uh, hey, they want you guys to back up Chris Christofferson. Because we had played shows with him before, right? And yeah. we we played once with him at the uh, Ontario Place here at, at the the Budweiser stage. Cool. So anyway, we got up to uh, the farm, and there he was, and he was like, "Yeah, okay, well, we're gonna do Bobby McGee, Silver Tongue Devil, and we're gonna do uh, Sunday Morning Coming Down." And we, yeah, so we learned the <laughs> songs, and we it was great. It was like, that's cool. I got a little video of of uh, of it. At, oh, neat! I still watch it, and like, yeah, I, I pinch myself sometimes. It's yeah. Like, Oh, wow, did that well, that's really happen? Of,
0: you know? That's part like, of the ride, right? You get to yeah. work shoulders with people like that and, and the guys that, that you looked up to when you were coming up and, and saying Exactly. You know, and
1: Steve Earle's another guy. Like he he got up we did a show with him in Toronto here and uh, oh, cool and he got up twice. There's two yeah. different times. He got up and we did I Ain't Ever Satisfied with him and he did yeah. bad timing with us. Oh, nice it a verse of bad timing, you know, stuff like that.
0: Looking back, is there anything you would change about your career? Do differently how it was handled.
1: For career wise, uh, there there was uh, an opportunity. Instead of working with uh, as a producer, instead of working with Pete Anderson, we were gonna work with Jeff Emmerich, who worked with the Beatles. Right. Okay. He was the engineer of the Beatles. Yeah. In hindsight, I really wish we had gone and right. worked with Jeff Emmerich because he's a genius, and I love what he did. And yeah. And we we all agree if we had to do it over again, that we would have we would choose him.
0: Yeah. Know? Fair enough.
1: But at the time, I don't know, Greg really wanted Pete Anderson to do it. So yeah. we went with Pete Anderson. And you make the he decision. He did a good job. You. Yeah. You know? yeah. He did casino, right? And it's a good record and everything. But uh I would love to have worked with Jeff Emmerich because okay. I can't imagine what he would have you know, not do our sound.
0: No, but that that's okay. I mean, everyone's got, I guess, some of those you think, oh, I wonder what would have happened, but hey, you know, you're on a good path. So are you happy? Are you a happy guy?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. I pinch myself that, you know, I've been playing, I've been playing music my whole life.
0: Yeah. And great. I've made a
1: living. I have, I live in a really nice house in downtown Toronto. I live in Trinity Bellwoods. Mm-hmm. I own it outright. Nice. Uh, I have a nice cottage in Prince Edward County, and uh, um, I've traveled all over the world. You yeah, know? Uh, I've been to India. I've been to nice. uh, Australia several times. I've been, you know, to all these different places in Europe and that. And uh, to, I've been to the Middle East. You know, yeah. so cool. I, when I look back at it, go like, how many people get to do that?
0: You <laughs> oh, know? for like, sure.
1: All in a day's work. I remember yeah. being in Dubai, and Greg looks at me when we're sitting on a beach in Dubai, and he goes. And we're on our way to Afghanistan to play for the troops. And he
0: goes, yeah.
1: you sure have been to some strange places, haven't like, you? We sure have, Greg. <laughs> it's funny. pretty great. I remember sitting on the, the French Riviera, sitting in uh, Cannes, yeah, right, where the Film Fest is. Right, so they yeah. also have MEDAM there, right? Sitting yep. there on the beach, you know, and, and there was a snowstorm in Toronto. <laughs> and I'm looking out, and it's this beautiful day, right? I'm you know, thinking, like, oh yeah. man, Sockers. life is good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I wouldn't trade those experiences for you. No, anything, that's great. You know. What so, I mean? Not,
0: what's your goal now? Like, what do you what do you do looking forward here?
1: I just keep want to. I want to make music until I die. Yeah. Uh, cool. I, I don't want to change anything. You know, people will even say to me, like, you know, like the guys in this band that I played with yesterday, they're going, like, "Wow, like you, you know, you you flew back home to play with us. Like, this is a hundred and fifty dollar gig. Like, yeah. really, you know, why would you do?" That? You know? yeah. I said, "Hey, yeah. man, like, you know, I had a great time today, and yeah. I'm play- As long as I'm playing music, I'm happy, and yeah. and and I'm playing with great people, and and that's what I want to do. I'm yeah. Sixty-eight years old." And, and I've been playing professionally in this town for 52 years. Yeah. And, and I've only worked two day jobs in my yeah. life, right? And one of, the, one of them was for a year when I first started on construction. And then I worked in a restaurant for a while just because a friend of mine had a restaurant and Blue Rodeo had our first album out. Yeah. We weren't, Jim was still working his day job.
0: Yeah. And we
1: hadn't really gone on the big tour, the first big tour yet. Right. And I ended up cooking in this restaurant nice. because I like to cook, basically. Yeah. And that's the only real day jobs yep. I've ever had to have. You know, I, I always say to people, you know, the sign that I feel like I've made it is the fact that I didn't have to go out and get another job. You know?
0: Yeah, and that's um, and what I found too. As you get a little bit older, I'm I'm even more thankful. I've ma- I've been able to make a good living for 40 years playing music, and I'm just more thankful now. So every time I'm on stage or doing my thing, I'm just thankful.
1: Oh yeah Smart, I'm right? I'm just so happy that I get to do this for a living, you know. No, that, that's, that's the that's the biggest part. And like I said, I you know, I've supported my family. I have three kids yep. and uh you know, some of them are older. Like I I have a son who's forty eight years old. Yeah. Right? Wow. And uh, and I have a daughter that's eight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. So and then I have a grandchild and Yeah, and I you know, I've uh I've but sounds, seen them through all of the hard times and everything, and and yeah. been on the road a lot and missed a lot too. But that, well, see yeah. that's that's what I mean about saying life gets in the way sometimes, right? Yeah, you know, like that's, there's times yeah. when you go away for a long time and you come home yeah. and it's Well, tough. that's part thought of the sacrifice, gets.
0: right? I I couldn't handle yeah. that. I, I the most I ever did was six weeks, and it just about killed me. I did it twice, and I thought I just can't live this life. I just yeah. it's too hard. We did we did sometimes fourteen
1: weeks. Yeah no and, like, no, and then you come home and you'd only be home for a week
0: yeah there you go and you're going back out again you know? but you know what it sounds like you're in a good place in life and that's good to hear because you oh, know it's you great. talk about all the successes and everything but if i mean what does that mean anything if you're a dejected lonely you know disaffected person you got to be a happy person exactly. in, in amongst it all right absolutely yes yeah. Many thanks to Basil Donovan for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his incredible experiences in the music business and in life as well. So, more information is available at BlueRodeo.com. Excellent website, lots of information on there, and also active on Facebook at uh, Facebook.com forward slash Blue Rodeo. So, check that out. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Hare.